Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, a breakthrough in the search for a cure for HIV for just the third time ever and the first time for a woman, someone has been functionally cured of HIV. We speak with a Canadian doctor who is one of the leads in the case. Is getting too much of a good thing bring us all into less happy people? We speak to an addictions expert and author of the New York Times bestseller, Dopamine Nation, about why the constant search for pleasure instead brings us pain how to break that cycle. But we begin tonight with the ongoing blockade in Ottawa in its 20th day. Police now say they have a plan to bring it to an end. We speak to Ottawa's former chief of police about what's gone wrong and what lies ahead. The ongoing blockade in Ottawa and the debate raging inside Parliament about the government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, the first time that has happened since it was introduced more than 30 years ago. The Conservatives continue to denounce the move. Here is MP Michelle Rempel. The Emergency Act was not needed to settle the rail blockades of 2020, the Oka crisis, the crisis at Caledonia, September 11th, the COVID-19 pandemic, or any other dispute in Canadian history. The NDP, meanwhile, are offering the government necessary if lukewarm support for the powers it is granting itself to try to bring an end to the protests. Here is leader Jagmeet Singh. And we're going to be very carefully monitoring every step of the way what the government does. And will we prepare to use all of the accountability mechanisms that are available to withdraw support if need be and to stop the application of this emergency act? So we're going to hear very clear, carefully the parameters that the government's going to lay out in their speeches in the House. The government says the act is already having an impact, clearing border blockades in Manitoba, Alberta and B.C. Meantime, again, the protests in Ottawa into their 20th day. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino says that people long ago lost patience with the protests and the response from authorities. And one of the real concerns that I have is that if we don't see a resolution to this, more and more people who live in Ottawa may feel obliged to take matters into their own hands. And that would be a dangerous thing to do. We've seen it in some of the counter-protests where frustration is uh, beginning to boil over, where people who live here feel completely helpless and abandoned. Still, there does seem to be a change of tact from policing following the resignation of the police chief, Peter Slowly, yesterday. An integrated command centre is in place to allow RCMP and OPP to assist in command and control over policing of the blockade. Today, officers were handing out warnings to those still camped out near Parliament Hill, telling them it's now time to leave, outlining what penalties they can face. Um, under the Emergencies Act, of course, also Ontario State of Emergency, the Criminal Code, police are asking for patience. But how does the change in leadership in the middle of a crisis impact the response? And what will come next? Public safety consultant Charles Bordelow spent 35 years with the Ottawa police, including as police chief from 2012 to 2019. He joins me now from Ottawa. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, to begin, uh, just a reaction to the resignation of the police chief. We know that, uh, Peter, slowly, we know that during a crisis, often a change in leadership can be problematic. Uh, did the timing surprise you? Yeah, we were surprised with the timing. I think it caught a lot of people uh, off guard uh, internally and, and in the public as well. Uh, but, you know, I, I've known uh, Chief Stoley for, for a number of years from his days in Toronto and then uh, we, when he decided to, uh, to apply to Ottawa, we actually met and we had a conversation around what it's like placing in the nation's capital and uh, pleased that he, that he came here and, and he wanted to affect change. And he, he did make a significant difference on, on many fronts uh, internal to the Ottawa Police Service. 
Um, but I think it was a combination of things that just led to uh, his departure. Um, certainly that the public was, uh, was fed up, was very, is very frustrated by the perceived lack of response by the auto police service in, in bringing this uh, uh, occupation to, a, to an end. Uh, there was also council uh, members were starting to be very vocal around their dissatisfaction around the leadership. And there, there were some internal issues as well that were bubbling up and starting to um, to uh, be public around uh, leadership style and some events that had taken place internally. Um, so the board and him came to a mutual understanding that it was time for him to, to leave and uh, uh, really thank him for his leadership. And it's a, it's a tough time for him and his family, I'm sure. And it's a tough time for, uh, for the organization uh, at this point in time. And like you said, it's uh, uh, during a crisis, it's, it's, even more challenging when you have a change in leadership. You need that continuity uh, to send, continually send a, a clear message to the members, but to the community that uh, they are in charge and they're 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 moving forward. And, and you know, be, being the chief in Ottawa or being the chief of police anywhere is a difficult job. But you add the complexities of of being the nation's capital and the the political environment and the different levels of government, it becomes that much more complex so uh i am pleased to see that the board has uh, has appointed in, on interim basis uh, a deputy chief that i know very well steve bell and uh yeah i'm sure he'll bring some stability and 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 maybe chart a new path forward with respect to uh working with the rcmp and the opp and bringing this to a conclusion few people will understand the complexities of policing ottawa as well as you do um, for those who've been there, they may understand the complexities of having Parliament sit right in the middle of your downtown. Um, what have you seen over the past 19 days or so, and what would you explain to the rest of Canada about the complexities of trying to enforce the rules in a situation like this one in central Ottawa? So we, uh, we have never seen anything like this. I, I spent 35 years uh, policing here in Ottawa. I was born and raised here. I spent uh, seven years as a chief of police. Uh, we have hundreds of demonstrations each year because the parliament buildings are here. We have a number of embassies as well. Uh, the U.S. embassy is just around the corner and uh, the Chinese embassy. So there's many demonstrations that take place every year. Uh, the biggest one I saw was when the, the Tamil community came uh, to protest uh, against the uh, Sri Lankan government of, of events that took place there. And at, at its high point, we had about 30,000 individuals come to Ottawa in, in a weekend. But we had thousands stay during a week, uh, a period of about a week. And there were, there were disruptions to the downtown core and Wellington Streets, uh, Wellington Street, which is the street just across the, the apartment buildings. And, and people were inconvenienced. But there were zero arrests, uh, zero injuries, and total cooperation by the, the demonstrators over here. And by by far and large, that's the way demos really work. Uh, every every demo has its different dynamics. When you have the like, for example, the pro life versus pro choice groups, there's some dynamics around that. Uh, we had uh, we've had demos where we've had vehicles come in. I remember a farming demonstration where we had uh, farming trucks come across uh, on Wellington Street. What the difference was in this one here is that uh, hundreds and hundreds of trucks made their way to the downtown core and they stayed they stayed uh, past the past the weekend uh and so that that is something that is new not just in ottawa but 
I think anywhere else in Canada. And the uniqueness around Ottawa downtown is you have a number of residential condos just uh, off of Wellington. Uh, so the, 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 the blocking of the streets, the noise, the diesel fumes, uh, uh, incessant no- uh, uh, honking of their horns at all hours of the day was starting to have a real impact on the residents. In addition to that, you've got businesses in the downtown core that were just about to open uh, because uh, the restrictions were being lifted for the pandemic. And they were forced to close, stay closed because of, of safety issues <clears throat> around the, the behaviors of the demonstrators harassing, intimidating people and going into one of the largest malls down there. The Rito Center has been closed for, for two weeks now because of, of the problems of the demonstrator. So, so that's the other unique thing. The one is the, is the trucks. The other is the behavior uh, being exhibited by these uh, demonstrators. Uh, it, it's, it's their behavior has been criminal, uh, intimidation, threats, assaults, uh, mischief to the war monument, Terry Fox statue, uh, the, the constant uh, honking of the, of the horns. We've never seen something that has spilled over into the neighborhood of the downtown core impacting our residents' uh, well-being, their livelihood, the businesses, and just the sheer uh, behavior of, of these demonstrators. That has never been experienced before in Ottawa. You would know the answer to this. Of course, many people in Ottawa specifically, but also around the country have wondered, and it's been pointed out on social media, of course, social media being another dynamic that's played into this, um, yeah. that, that, that officers weren't seen to be enforcing laws such as parking restrictions and so forth that other Ottawans are normally subject to. What do you think is happening there? So you have to, in a demonstration uh, where uh, the potential for violence is, is escalated, and you've got extreme volatility. You have to pick and choose your battles uh, when you're a police service trying to trying to keep the peace and manage tensions at a, at a, an acceptable level. So you may choose not to enforce or ignore certain laws because if you intervene and you don't have the right resources, uh, there there could be some serious consequences around that. So they chose a, at the beginning. I think I think what happened is they didn't plan for them to stay. So when they saw that they stayed, then they had to re- revisit their plans and figure out, okay, how are we going to manage this 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 new animal that's that's in the in our city and something we've never experienced before. So they took a, a hands off approach to try to assess the situation, and then things really started to escalate as far as the the noise, the behaviors, and and the harassment and threats that were taking place against our residents so then they went sorry go ahead yeah so that then they took an approach of of contain suppress and enforce and they made a, a bunch of statements around being able to increase their presence in the downtown core uh, enforce the laws uh, start to seize jerry cans and they really didn't execute that to the best that they could uh, because they they the indication is that they didn't have have enough resources to do that effectively in, in such a large area. I'm back with Charles Bordelow, public safety consultant and former Ottawa police chief. We're discussing uh, the resignation of uh, Ottawa police chief Peter Slowly, as well as the challenges that the blockade has presented to the local police force. And uh, and what now that there is new leadership in place and new coordination in place as well. I want to ask you about that because now the RCMP, the OPP and Ottawa police are coordinating. Uh, what do you expect to unfold now? Are we going to see, I think we're already seeing a different approach today. Yeah, they're, they're, they formally uh, come under a, what they call a unified command structure, which means that 
auto police still retains jurisdiction because you can't change the police service of jurisdiction. Uh, it's in the city and it's outside the fence of Parliament Hill. So we, the police service owns that part from a criminality perspective. However, uh, they create a unified command structure, which means that any decision that is made with respect to a strategy or enforcement or approach is done in unison with key partners with the OPP and the RCMP. So they're all on the same page with respect to the approach that's going to be taken. And it facilitates the coordination uh, and accessing the right resources for the right strategy. Uh, so they've, they've, they've received a number of resources, both from the OPP and the RCMP and other municipal police services. They're, they're in a better position now to coordinate their efforts towards the successful and peaceful conclusion of this event. We've seen the handing out of flyers today telling protesters to leave. We've certainly seen them, many of them at least, ignoring them. Where does this go from here? Well, there's been a, a natural progression uh, across the, uh, over the, the past couple of weeks around sending messages to those who choose to stay that they need to leave. They're, they're breaking a law, and they're breaking several laws. Uh, the, the announcement of the Emergencies Act also uh, announces new measures that the government can take around truckers uh, around their bank accounts, their businesses, their licenses, both at the provincial and federal level. Uh, now the handing out of the flyers is a, I would say, a, a personal delivery and personal message to each individual that is within that, that red zone, they call, to say, leave uh, or you will be arrested. So if, if individuals who choose to stay after that letter uh, choose to stay, it's because it, they're doing it out of their own uh, volition. Uh, they're trying to uh, get everybody or as many people to leave voluntarily as possible. And also, they're trying to send a message to others who want to come to Ottawa that uh, it's not acceptable and you, there are consequences around that. So I would see this as a, as a, uh, a last call uh, around uh, potential uh, police action that will then, uh, much like the Windsor case, uh, which will be bringing in individuals to, to uh, arrest them and remove them physically from, from that red zone. So try and get everyone, the more moderates, everyone out, make sure no one else comes in and then isolate those who are determined to stay and then figure out what you're not figure out. I'm sure there's a plan in place for that as well. Are you confident after watching what you've watched the last 19 days after your 35 years of service in Ottawa? Are you confident this can end peacefully? I, I'm confident that this can end and I'm hopeful that it, it will end peacefully. Uh, that is uh, the decision for it to end peacefully is totally up to those who choose to stay. Uh, Fortunately, when we saw the ending in Windsor, those who choose to stay uh, chose to stay. Uh, they were arrested, but it was done peacefully, and there were no injuries. And that's that's the goal that everybody has. Uh, but that is totally up to the demonstrators and what the, their actions and their reaction to any uh, any uh, show of force in order to bring in uh, officers to start uh, effecting arrests uh, in, in an operation. Uh, if if they if they resist. Uh, or, or, or escalate the violence, then they will be met with a measured approach with, to, to, uh, to force. Charles Bordelow, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, man. You never want to overstate these stories, but there was indeed big news today on the search for a cure for HIV that I'd like to tell you about tonight. Doctors in the U.S., including a Canadian one, 
are reporting only the third known case of HIV remission and the first in a woman following a bone marrow transplant using HIV-resistant cells. Joining me now from New York is one of the lead physician researchers involved in the case. Dr. Marshall Glasby is the Associate Chief of the Division of Infectious Disease with the Weill Department of Medicine at Cornell University, and he happens to be from Winnipeg. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is really, I mean, the headline is 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 quite astounding and, and the science behind it quite fascinating. What exactly was the treatment? And, and when you call it a functional cure, what, it is that, what is it that you found? Well, the particular person that uh, enrolled in our trial was a woman living with HIV who developed leukemia and was in need of a stem cell transplant, sometimes called a bone marrow transplant, but technically they're... Uh, cells, in this case, it didn't come from bone marrow directly. And uh, as part of her treatment for the leukemia, she enrolled in a trial where we were able to transplant her with cells that were resistant to HIV infection. And specifically, the resistant cells came from umbilical cord donation uh, from when the time a baby was born. And they were uh, have a particular genetic background where the cells are resistant to HIV called a CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. It's something that is seen in a small percentage of the population, probably less than 1% of people, uh, usually people of Northern European ancestry. And generally people are quite healthy and don't have any significant health issues uh, when they're born with this. So uh, she had a transplant to treat the leukemia with these umbilical cord cells that were resistant to HIV. And in conjunction with that, she also had stem cells that came from the blood of a relative that were partly matched to her uh, genetically. And the reason for doing that was uh, in order to treat the leukemia, she had high-dose chemotherapy, which meant that her bone marrow was not going to produce any white blood cells to fight off infection or platelet cells to uh, Plot the blood for a period of time. And we know with the umbilical cord cells, it can take almost a month for them to populate the bone marrow and start producing those cells. With the other types of cells that she got from the relative, uh, they took over in her bone marrow for the short term and really served as a bridge. So in about a couple of weeks, they were able to start producing cells, enabled her to recover, leave the hospital for a little over you know, roughly two and a half weeks. And then over the ensuing weeks, the stem cells from the umbilical cord that were resistant to HIV took over. And by 100 days after the transplant, they constituted 100% of the cells in her blood. And uh, that's important because, again, those are the cells that HIV is not able to infect. So she recovered well from the transplant, did very well. And uh, 37 months later, she uh, opted to stop her HIV therapy, which she had been on you know, since her diagnosis of HIV. And she was followed very, very closely with frequent monitoring for reappearance of HIV in her bloodstream. And to date, and now we're about uh, 14 months after stopping her HIV therapy, there's not been reemergence of HIV. She's had other sophisticated research tests to try to look for HIV, to look for her body's immune response to HIV, and they're all consistent with there really not being any active HIV in our body. So we call that a functional cure. We can't guarantee that there isn't some HIV somewhere. We haven't you know, done extensive biopsies in different parts of her body, but based on the available information, 
we can say that there doesn't appear to be any evidence of active HIV absent treatment for HIV. So she's doing very, very well off of HIV therapy. So if I understand correctly, this is essentially replacing an immune system with something able to fight off HIV. Uh, I know that sounds a bit, a bit simple, but it, it sounds like that's, what, that's what's been done successfully, at least for the time being. Well, I would probably not use the term fight off HIV. I would just say that she has cells that uh, repopulated her body that are really essentially immune or resistant to being infected with HIV. So HIV really had nowhere to go. Uh, there weren't any cells that it was able to, virus is able to infect. Was was this um, unexpected? Was the result unexpected? I I would say it wasn't unexpected. uh, This particular type of transplant that I mentioned uh, with the umbilical cord cells had not been done uh, for this purpose and and also giving the related cells, what we call the haplocells in addition. This particular type of transplant has not been done before with the intent of curing both something like leukemia and uh, HIV or leading to long-term control of HIV. The two previous people that have been reported who underwent similar approaches where they uh, got transplanted for, in one case, leukemia, the other lymphoma, uh, with cells resistant to HIV, had more traditional stem cell transplants with cells that came from adult donors. And what's sort of interesting about those other two cases is that they both had something called graft versus host disease, which means that the cells that they were uh, transplanted with essentially started attacking their own cells uh, in their bodies. And that can be a very serious complication, needs to often be treated with immunosuppressive medications, which can have complications. And um, it was never you know, not really understood whether that particular aspect of those cases may have led to wiping out some of the cells with HIV in it. And maybe that was part of what contributed to the cure or long-term control of HIV. We know from our case, that um, these cord umbilical cord cells are actually less likely to cause graft-versus-host disease, and in fact, she didn't develop graft-versus-host disease, and yet she's hopefully ending up in the same place with long-term control of HIV. So it seems that this particular uh, complication was not essential to lead to long-term control of, of the infection. Because for listeners who don't know, even functional cures of HIV are exceptionally rare, I gather. Absolutely correct. There have been three people reported. Our case is the third, and actually the first, it's a woman, and a woman who identifies as being uh, of uh, multiple uh, races. Mm -hmm. And uh, we think that's actually important because uh, women make up more than half of people living with HIV in the world. In the U.S., it's about a quarter of uh, people with HIV are women, and they've traditionally been underrepresented in research studies, and in particular studies that could contribute to ultimately to HIV cure where some data suggests there are only about 11% of people who enroll in those studies are women. So we're very proud of the fact that uh, our particular participant is, is a woman. And uh, there have been a couple of other people who seemingly more naturally have controlled HIV without a, something radical like a transplant as in the first three cases. I'm, I'm- want to ask you about what this means more broadly for the uh, more than a million in the US and tens of thousands in Canada living with HIV. But I want to ask you first, because this is always something that, you know, I, I remember the first cases of HIV way back when, why is it proven so difficult to find a cure for HIV? That's a great question. I mean, we have uh, really uh, the ability now to uh, control HIV quite readily with antiretroviral drugs, and people can live 
you know, really close to normal lifespans. There are concerns about uh, ongoing inflammation and activation of the immune system in people even who have their HIV under control, and that could lead to long-term complications. So there's higher risk of heart disease, certain cancers, et cetera. People may be aging more rapidly uh, who have HIV compared to people without HIV. So it's not necessarily uh, without complications, but people are living relatively normal lifespan. So that's been a huge development uh, over the past 15, 20 years. But people can't be cured of HIV because HIV is a very sneaky virus. It has the ability to insert itself into our genetic material, into the DNA of our cells. And then it stays in places where uh, the cells live for a very long time. And unless we have a strategy to actually get rid of those cells, HIV is going to be dormant to some degree in the body and always there and always able to reactivate if we stop HIV therapy. So there are other approaches that are being studied uh, to try to uh, purge HIV out of these places. We call that HIV reservoir. And then maybe uh, you know, use other types of approaches to control the virus, but you know we're still a ways away from from implementing those types. Of- I'm back now with Dr. Marshall Glesby, Associate Chief Division of Infectious Diseases, Weill Department of Medicine at the Weill Cornell University School of Medicine, and one of three physician scientists who's led a clinical trial uh, that has cured or functionally cured HIV in a American woman. One of the only three times that that has happened. And we're discussing both what happened and now we'll discuss a bit about what the broader impl- implications of the treatment are. Um, and I understand that in this case, because she was uh, living with leukemia as well, that this isn't necessarily uh, a process that could be used widely um, in other patients. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, undergoing a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant is uh, not an insignificant uh, procedure, and it has uh, the potential for complications or even death. And perhaps 10 to 20% of people uh, could die just from having a transplant like this related to complications of having received high-dose chemotherapy or in some cases radiation as well to wipe out their bone marrow to allow for the transplant to uh, take hold. And there can be infectious complications in particular. So this is not something that would be widely applicable. It's uh, something that could be considered in somebody who is uh, in need of a stem cell or bone marrow transplant because of a condition like leukemia or certain lymphomas. Uh, uh, In in that case, it might be something to consider uh, if these types of cells are available. And I think what our case also demonstrates uh, is that these umbilical cord cells could be considered for such a transplant. And why is that important? It turns out that umbilical cord cells can be stored, so you don't have to have a, you know, a fresh donor like you would with an adult donor. And theoretically, you could have a supply of them that have the uh, genetic background, again, with the CCR5 uh, mutation where they are uh, resistant to being infected with HIV, and then see if you could match them to somebody who needs the transplant. And uh, the other advantage is that they don't have to be match quite as rigorously as adult stem cell or bone marrow donors. So it's possible that uh, there would be more people who could find a match with this particular genetic background and be able to receive those cells uh, during a transplant. That being said, Dr. Glesby, this is, this does feel like a very important step in, in, at least in the long journey uh, in, in the search for a cure. How would you describe it? Yeah, well, we're excited about the findings and uh, we, we think that, you know, a modestly increased number of people could 
be eligible for this type of transplant should they need a transplant for another medical reason, again, like leukemia in particular. But beyond that, it's additional proof of concept that these cells resistant to HIV, if they repopulate a person's body, can lead to long-term control of the infection. And it's, there are research groups that are studying how to potentially replicate this through things like gene therapy. Could you take a person's cells out of their body, genetically manipulate them to really mimic the type of cells that uh, our patient received, uh, in other words, cells that are, are resistant to HIV, and then re-infuse those cells into the person with the hope that uh, they would also be able to achieve long-term control of the infection. So we're you know, a long way from doing that, but it's something that's actively being researched in multiple labs uh, throughout the world. So we, it does feel like we continuously move in it, towards discovering more and more and, and, and towards finding, I mean, the work continues, but it's always exciting when these sorts of developments happen, I gather, for the whole, for, the, for everyone working towards this. Absolutely. It's, you know, I think it really uh, provides additional hope to people living with HIV that there are uh, you know, multiple efforts that are ongoing to try to either improve therapy or ultimately lead to a cure and uh, that, you know, although it's only a small number of people so far who've benefited from this, that uh, there really is, I think, uh, a lot of hope and uh, reason to be optimistic about the future. I understand in this specific case, though, that the monitoring of this uh, particular patient's uh, condition continues. Is that uh, what will you be looking for? And, and how long does that monitoring continue till you can declare a cure? Well, I, you know, I don't know that there's necessarily a uh, cutoff where we would say uh, we're not going to call this long-term remission anymore. We're going to call it cure. She will be, you know, monitored carefully. She uh, does not need to be monitored quite as frequently as she had been in the initial months after stopping HIV therapy uh, because she has done so well. And we're quite optimistic that just routine monitoring, you know, can be spaced out and, and will, you know, confirm that the HIV has not reemerged. She knows also... Uh, is four and a half years in remission for her leukemia. And uh, that's something that has to be monitored still as well. Just in terms of this patient, this must have made quite a significant difference. At the risk of understating it, it must have made quite a significant difference in her life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, I think, uh, both contributing to science as a whole, providing hope to other people, and just uh, for herself, uh, not uh, needing to take her HIV medication anymore. I think those are all probably important things that I imagine she's been uh, thinking about and, and in a very positive way. Dr. Glesby, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for shedding some light on this, uh, what feels like an important and, and big step in, in uh, the ongoing search for a cure for HIV. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we are surrounded by quick fixes these days, stuff that gives us a shot of happiness or satisfaction. We have all our traditional ones and now add smartphones and social media to the mix. And we've all become prone to what my next guest calls compulsive overconsumption. The problem she sees is that this relentless pursuit of pleasure actually leads to pain. Call it the yin and yang of life. So what can you do about it? Joining me now is Dr. Anna Lemke, Professor of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's also the author of a New York Times bestseller called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. There's a lot to chew on in this one, and to help us, she joins us now. Thank you for being here. 
Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to start with the simplest of questions because the title of your book kind of sums it up. What is dopamine and why are we living in what you describe as a dopamine nation? Dopamine is a chemical that is released in our brain whenever we experience pleasure, reward, or are motivated to seek out pleasure and reward. Dopamine is also very sensitive to novelty in the environment, including stimuli that are dangerous and novel. We are living in a dopamine nation because we are in an unprecedented era of human history where we have almost infinite access to a huge variety of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors at our fingertips. And that is not just changing the way we live, changing our culture, but actually changing our brain chemistry. For example, and you've provided many examples of the sorts of things you know, we always used to refer to in, in, in the news business as the shiny ball. We always chase the shiny ball, right? Um, what are some examples of, of things that we seek out for pleasure and then overindulge in? Today, there's almost nothing that hasn't been drugified. Food is drugified with the addition of fats, sugars, salt. Uh, human connection is drugified with the advent of uh, social media, which has turned what was an otherwise highly healthy and adaptive uh, kind of behavior that is connecting with other human beings into something that can now work just like a drug. Um, video games, pornography, shopping, uh, gaming, you name it, it's all become drugified. Uh, even something like listening to music uh, has been drugified. For example, American Idol is not just music, it's also a competition, so it's been gamified. Um, and almost everything now has this quality of being more potent being more available, and thus uh, sending surges of dopamine in our brain, which may make us more vulnerable to addiction. So this is really about this idea of, of instant gratification that we, that, that's so available to us now. What happens, though, to the brain when we seek this instant gratification and then try to seek it again and again? Pleasure and pain are actually co-located in the brain. They work like opposite sides of a balance. Um, so when we experience pleasure, especially with something that's highly reinforcing, like so much stuff is now, we get not just a little release of dopamine, but a big surge of dopamine in a part of the brain called the reward pathway that makes our pleasure pain balance tip to the side of pleasure. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long to pleasure or pain. And the way that our brain restores a level balance is first by tipping an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the after effect, that moment of wanting to watch one more YouTube video. If we continue to expose our brain repeatedly over time to the same or similar highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, eventually our brain has to accommodate by chronically tilting to the side of pain. So I imagine this as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance. Uh, if we use pleasurable activities and substances in moderation, then the gremlins hop off the pain side and balance is restored. But if we continue to expose our brain to highly reinforcing drug behaviors, we, love, we end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill uh, this whole room or maybe a whole football stadium. And then we're in a dopamine deficit state. That is in essence, the addicted brain. Now we need to keep using not to get high, but just to feel normal. When we're not using, we're walking around with balance tilted toward the side of pain, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from the substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, 
and craving. And nothing else is enjoyable when we get in this state. We need more and more of our drug to get the same effect and other things lose their salience and lose their potency for us. This is, this is what happens when we enter compulsive overconsumption, otherwise known as addiction. What's remarkable is that this used to be the language, even in my lifetime, this was the language of, of alcoholism. This was the a language of drug addiction. And now it seems to apply across the spectrum to many things. When you, the way the language is now used, you could think of you know, putting down the cookies to pick up your phone, to look at YouTube, putting down the YouTube to look at Twitter. Um, you know, we're surrounded by these addictive or at least alluring things. Yes, exactly. So what makes a substance more addictive are four four criteria, access, quantity, potency, and novelty. We now have unprecedented access to these reinforcing feel-good drugs and behaviors, literally at the touch of a fingertip. They are immediately accessed, or if they're a traditional uh, substance delivered to our doorstep, quantity, um, you know, part of what makes something addictive is if it's easy to get. And TikTok literally never runs out. In terms of potency, all drugs today are more potent, including traditional drugs like cannabis, like alcohol, like nicotine products. We can all deliver more of that specific reinforcing chemical faster to our brains. Uh, But also potency is created by combining uh, two drugs together. For example, a benzo like Xanax plus an opioid like Oxycontin, or as I mentioned, American Idol music plus a game. And this is what's happening on the internet. Now, social media, for example, has taken human connection and drugified it. We do know that when we make human connections, oxytocin, our love hormone is released and binds to neurons in the reward pathway, which then release dopamine. This is not a big surprise. Falling in love, making intimate connections makes us all feel good. But what's happened on social media is that now we have infinite access to an unlimited quantity of highly reinforcing faces, humans, human behavior. And with a single swipe of the hand, if we're bored with what we're looking at, um, the other thing that triggers dopamine is novelty. So it's quantity, access, potency, and novelty. If we get bored with what we have, we just find something similar to it. And with one swipe, uh, we're off and running. Also, the AI algorithms that uh, have been created that work in, as like an invisible hand in the background of these products and learn us, know what we like, and then to continue to suggest things that we've liked before, but they're, that are a little bit different, which in turn continues to spike our dopamine and keep us caught in that loop of pursuing dopamine, followed by that dopamine deficit state and needing more and more over time to get the same effect. I'm speaking with Anna Lemke, professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine, chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic and author of Dopamine Nation. What happens then to a society that is undergoing this sort of um, this dopamine fueled um, state, in other words? I mean, what impact does it have uh, if, if a lot of people find themselves in this sort of pleasure-seeking or pleasure-deficit state? Well, one of the first things that happens is that we're all more prone to the problem of addiction. Addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self or others. The other thing that happens is that it causes depression, anxiety, insomnia, and and general um, despair because we are individually and collectively 
essentially going into this dopamine deficit state to accommodate the constant, constant influx of these surges of dopamines, our bodies are now having to downregulate our own dopamine production and our own dopamine transmission. We are in fact reeling in the face of this overwhelming um, bombardment of dopamine. And, and, and that does, in my mind, explain why we have rising rates of depression and anxiety and suicide the world over. If you look at rates of depression and anxiety, they've increased all over the world, but especially in rich nations. This is fascinating and paradoxical. Why is it that in the very countries that have the most uh, social goods, access to quality education, access to good health care, access to any consumer product that we want, uh, these are the countries uh, in which people are experiencing the highest rates of depression and anxiety and also killing themselves. And I would suggest that it is this world of overabundance that is actually changing our brain chemistry, resetting our pleasure pain balance, putting us in a dopamine deficit state and making us all more miserable. I'm back with Anna Lemke, professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic, an expert in addictions and author of the book, Dopamine Nation. We've talked a lot about the issue um, that there is so much instant gratification around us that we indulge in it and then leave ourselves in a situation where the balance can only be set by experiencing the pain, which we all seem so desperate to avoid. Um, what can one do? to at least try to, I mean, we know how much temptation there is out there right now um, from our phones to the foods, as you've explained, what can one do to try to protect oneself from all that temptation? This is both an individual and a collective problem, which is to say we as individuals can take actions in our own lives, but that alone will ultimately not solve the problem for our nations to solve the problem globally and nationally, uh, it has to be the efforts of both individuals and our regulatory bodies, as well as the corporations who make these products. So let's start with the individual. What we can do individually is identify that substance or behavior that we have a conflicted and or addicted relationship with, that thing that we use more of than we should, more of than we want to, and we see it causing harm in our lives in myriad ways. What we need to do is eliminate that substance or behavior for a minimum of 30 days, which is long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance so that dopamine homeostasis can be restored. We can get out of that state of dysphoria and craving, and we can enjoy other more modest rewards. One of the things that happens in this dopamine deficit state is that our attention narrows and only that object uh, that we're addicted to uh, becomes enjoyable. So by abstaining for long enough to reset the balance, we can recapture our joy in other things. I will say a couple caveats. If this, if it's the, the individual is severely addicted and has tried repeatedly to stop on their own, then obviously they shouldn't keep trying that. They should go to uh, seek out a, a healthcare professional and potentially attend some kind of residential treatment facility where they don't have access so they can have help abstaining. If this is an individual with a severe alcohol or benzodiazepine addiction like Xanax, and they might be at risk for life-threatening withdrawal, again, those individuals should not quite try to go cold turkey they should seek out a healthcare professional. So it is that, that abstinence, though, that resets reward pathways that gives us the perspective and insight that we need to know uh, what impact that substance or behavior is having on our lives. Having done that, we are now free to make rational choices with more data. 
uh, about how we want to use that substance. We can choose then to continue to abstain beyond a month, or we can go back to using in moderation. And in my book, I talk about self-binding strategies in order to limit use. These are literal and metacognitive barriers that we put between ourselves and our drug of choice. I will also add the other important intervention is to press intentionally on the pain side of the balance. So when we do that, those gremlins hop on the pleasure side and tip our pleasure pain set point to the side of pleasure. This is things like exercise, ice cold water baths, intermittent fasting, or really anything that causes some temporary mild discomfort or physical pain uh, as a way to reset dopamine pathways. I also talk in my book about the importance of radical honesty and telling the truth as a way to stimulate the prefrontal cortex and promote uh, true intimacy as a way to get out of compulsive overconsumption. Uh, Anna Lipke, are, are you by nature a, an optimistic person? Do you see, because it feels like when we look around us that in fact, you know, during the pandemic too, and what we're seeing uh, societally and so on, that we're actually going the wrong way right now. Do you see any hope of once the problem is recognized that perhaps we may all be able to take a collective step back? I agree with you that we are going in the wrong direction, but I am optimistic that we are going to be able to figure this out and change course. If there's one thing that can be said about human beings, it's, it's that we're remarkably adaptive. Uh, so I think the important thing is to recognize that we have reached this tipping point where our world of overabundance is actually completely mismatched for our primitive wiring. And we need to uh, invoke our gray matter uh, into figuring out uh, how to live in this kind of ecosystem that we weren't evolved for. But I'm optimistic that we can do it. In your case, personally, I mean, we all have our own little addictions. Listening to you, I can think of the things that I do addictively. You know, I addictively look at Twitter. I just do. Um, I used to, you know, I still enjoy the odd cigarette, sadly, um, but try not to, obviously. Um, there are so many things, and often sometimes you'll put, put away one just to indulge in another. Uh, have you ever struggled with your own, and how do, how do you get over them? How, what, what, uh, what have you done? Yeah, so as I talk about in my book, I did get addicted to romance novels. Um, Twilight, The Twilight Saga was my gateway drug, and the Kindle was my hypodermic needle, and, um, it, it, you know, it, it really did impact uh, my relationships and, um, you know, my ability to function also conflicted with my values. Fortunately, I was lucky I didn't get to the point where I had very serious consequences. And so, you know, it's not to liken my experience to that of patients of mine who have nearly died from their addiction. It's rather to point out that addiction is a spectrum and we're actually all somewhere either on that spectrum or about to be on that spectrum, especially in the world we live in today. So I do um, openly talk about that in the book. And then even on a daily basis, I mean, I, I think you could say I compulsively check. I'm not on social media. I actually um, don't use a smartphone. I keep one turned off in my bag for emergencies and also to prescribe medications. I'm not able to prescribe medications at my institution without the phone. That was something they instituted a couple of years ago when I first got my smartphone. Um, but I am compulsively, um, I do compulsively check my email. I can't watch YouTube videos of Dr. Pimple Popper because once I start watching those, I can't stop. So it's a constant battle. Yeah, I was going to say, which is which brings up the question because nothing seems more innocuous than reading, to some extent, than reading novels, like reading a romance novel. And yet I guess what you're describing really, and this is for every listener or every individual to recognize is, is your relationship with said thing healthy or not? 
That's right. And that's what it comes down to. On the face of it, reading might seem innocuous, but my attachment to reading was um, something that began to interfere with my life. The Kindle gave me um, unprecedented access. And I will also say that in many ways, um, you know, romance novels are socially sanctioned pornography for women. And over time, I needed more and more potent forms to get, you know, to get the same effect because of the the gremlins hopping on the pain side of my balance. And so eventually I was reading, you know, Frank erotica and not even finishing the books, just like getting to that point about three quarters of the way through, which by the way, I could tell you any romance or erotica novel, that's where, you know, you, uh, that, that's where you kind of re- reach the climax, so to speak. Right. And, uh, and then I wouldn't even finish them. I would just, I would want the next one. And that I realized in retrospect was exactly what my patients addicted to, um, heroin would describe like first it was really important for them to get China white and really high-end her- heroin and then deep into their addiction they didn't care where it came from black tar heroin dirty needle didn't matter they just wanted their fix fascinating conversation Anna Lemke thank you so much for your time and for your insight on this you are very welcome my pleasure thank you for having me 